Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. Today, we have the second part of my conversation with Andre Dolnikov. As I mentioned previously, in this part, Andre talks about business guidance, trust, business culture, and going global. I hope you enjoy it. So we've touched on part of the business as a whole, but I guess um, your business has to have a, a very solid sort of foundation on which to build on things like your raw talent and the ability to deliver on projects. And so from the very early days, what I was wanting to understand was, and this is going to take a, a bit of a step back to going back to your sort of early days of starting, but what were some of the challenges that you faced and did you have people that guided you through that process? Yeah, it was definitely learned by doing. To an extent, I have abilities to design processes, but definitely there's people that are much, much better at it in my business these days and even the early days. So I'm not hopeless at it. These days, you'll ask my like key operational people in the business, they'll say, I am hopeless at it, which I'm okay with. But in the beginning, I was able to put it together, the beginnings of it. Obviously, other people have taken it to a whole other level, like I'm blown away by that. So I did ha always have guidance. I've worked, I mean, I have zero business background, education, nobody in my family to talk to. I had a, you know, a couple of friends who were a little bit in business, but I worked with a business coach from the earliest time when I realized I got it to a certain point. I was speaking to a friend. He said, you should work with this coach that's been pretty good. So I've had one, two, three, about three different coaches over the years. Currently we don't have one, but they helped me with different aspect of the business that was most important at that time. So my very first one was really very sales focused because at the end of the day, you can have the best business and the best product. If you don't have the clients or the sales, you've got nothing. You don't have a business. Yep. Sorry. That's not a business. business. Sales is oxygen. Without it, there's nothing. <laughs> You're just fooling yourself. So I had one that helped me with that, just kind of like some of the processes around prospecting, you know, researching potential clients, getting in front, cold calling, just all the grunty, unglamorous things that most people wouldn't want to do. That's yeah. the gritty yeah. side of business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, to be honest, the vast majority of people are not interested in doing that sort of stuff or not interested in doing it long enough to be successful. So we had a big growth spurt from 20 to about 70 people at one point. And we needed to really make sure that the structure, the hierarchy, the organizational structure was, we didn't have an org chart didn't have anything. So that coach, along with other key people in the business at the time, really focused on that organizational structure. I had no idea about it. It's always an evolving thing. Then coach after that was more around really focusing on strategy, planning, risk assessment, and mentoring our leadership team. So we had senior people then eventually evolved to, like, there is a leadership team. And that leadership team needs to always grow themselves, need to grow resilience. There's so much that's resting on them. The success of the business is on their shoulders. So each of the different mentors and coaches I've had has contributed something that was important at that time in the business's journey. So you found their services, they actually delivered on, I've been reluctant to ever, you know, sign a business coach up because I'm just not sure what I'm getting into or what I'll get out of it. But, you know, yeah. hearing that is providing quite a interesting perspective on, and particularly 
you know, it's not just one business coach. It's been a few over a series of phases of the business growth. Look, I mean, my experience has been good. We definitely, I wouldn't say outgrown each one, but at a certain point, we felt we no longer need to work with that particular coach, even though they're all great. But we almost like felt we learned some of the lessons that we needed to learn from them. And then it was about implementing more than learning new things. And I mean, I got value out of it. I don't like to take my experience and extrapolate it into a, you know, a, an instruction to the whole world. I don't know. You have to identify what you need. I think mm. that's the thing. Yeah. And not that I had this kind of like calculated, oh, I need help with sales. Let me get us. It, it just happened. <laughs> In retrospect, I look at it that way. At the time, I mean, the, the subsequent coach, it was about what I needed. It was like coach one was for the startup phase. Coach two is for the growth phase. Coach three was for the consolidation phase. And there was different needs. So I've definitely, yes, I've had a great experience. Put it this way. A coach is like this. A coach should be able to help make the kind of decisions that if they help you make one good decision per year, that decision should be worth five times what you're paying them. They're not there to coach you through the day-to-day BS that happens. That's your job. You're supposed to know your product. Some of these coaches didn't really know my business that well. It's more to help you make big decisions, structural decisions. And if they help you make one good one per year or to avoid one big mistake, that's how I look at it. I just always looked at it like it's another salary. I don't have a partner. I don't have people that I can bounce ideas off in that way. So I needed that that extra person. And so just on the idea of business partners and, and hierarchy, if we can just start to get into that, you know, as your, as your business evolved. Yeah. So you go from yeah, being a solo founder to now having a, a string of executive people that are running various aspects of the project. What kind of challenges did you face? You're finding people that you were happy to basically entrust your business to. I don't have an issue trusting people as long as I trust them. <laughs> I know it's a stupid sounding thing to say. Like if they prove themselves to me that they have the right character, the right thought processes, and they're committed and they're really, really good, I trust them even though they may make mistakes because I also make mistakes. But if any of those elements are missing, I have a hard time trusting people. If I feel a person has ulterior motives, or their value system is too out of whack with mine, or they just have a competency issue, (laughs) or they're not driven enough, then I have a great deal of, I mean, I shouldn't be having people like that work for me, to be honest, if if I I can avoid it. So I've just been very, very fortunate that, that the people I've had around me have such a huge percentage of them have ticked all those boxes. And that's always meant different things at different phases in the business. But, you know, once they're there, in some periods, I can get a bit micromanaging in some areas. But I try even that when that happens, I know it's a problem. I know I've got some sort of structural problem that is requiring me to zoom in a bit too much on the day to day of a particular area of the business. Sometimes that's necessary, but I never look at it as like, okay, from now on, you know, someone has to run with it like it's their own business. Sort of stupid joke I make about that is like assuming they're good at running their own business. Don't treat it like it's your business. Treat it like it's my business. That's how we do things. Don't do it your way. (laughs) Do it the way you've been asked. But yeah, that's usually a sign of some sort of dissonance between what we want and what they think we should do. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, we, we talk about culture, like a lot of our focus is on culture. And I don't mean like pool tables and, 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 you know, beers. I mean, attitudes, ways of thinking, you know, glass half full, being very much solution focused, being able to handle stress and help other people de-stress as opposed to escalating stress. And I'm not saying we're perfect at this, but these are all things we strive for. And if people are all striving for that, then there's a lot of trust 
between everybody. Well, actually, maybe we could talk a bit about that idea of business culture, because I mean, that's sort of everything. You know, if, if you look after your employees, well, then generally, they're going to be the ones that are looking after your clients, because they're going to have some of that day-to-day yeah, and face. And- Most clients in my company don't know me. So I, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I absolutely like, that's not even a, like a thing. Like, yeah, I, and I'm happy about that. Yeah. If clients so, are listening, don't worry, you can call me. You can call me. You just don't need to. Yeah. So some of those things that you touched on, so there's things like, your employee's ability to develop while working with you. There's, you know, things like looking after their mental well-being, and I dare say you'd be sort of interested in what their lives are like beyond turning up to the office. You know, what are some of those things that you've implemented in the business to help develop that sort of staff culture? So the culture side of things is, again, it's not the gimmicky things. Definitely not. Now we kind of like codified. We made like a mission statement, vision statement. And we have our like core values to five or six things that we call them our core values. So the mission is like, what are we trying to accomplish? The vision is more, one of them is more the why, another one is more the what. And like one is a bit more practical, another one's more aspirational. And then the values are more how we do things around here. That's what the values are. None of the values are pool tables, even though we have a pool table or in Sydney, we have a pool table. <laughs> I love that stuff, but that should be the outcome of the culture, not yeah. what makes it. Let's rewind a little bit back. So we codify our culture maybe two or three years ago, like actually put words around these things. Any company has a culture. You can have a terrible culture. Culture is just how things are done. A family has a culture. A group of friends has a culture. It's just the way the tone and, and, and the energy and the unwritten rules around the interactions between a group of people. Yeah. That's what to me culture is. So for me, I need to have fun at work. You know, if something's going wrong, if you can make a joke, laugh to stop yourself from crying, that's always positive. You know, we definitely had the culture of being client focused. We always like wanted like, okay, how can we make this work for the client? And we've always had the culture of like, we need to do the best work we possibly can. We also hate working with people that are a-holes. So I don't like working with people that are jerks. Therefore, we try to have as few as possible jerks in our team. That leads to treating each other a particular way. So certain behaviors are just something like, well, that doesn't feel binyan, you know? And if someone behaves a particular way, like that doesn't belong here. I mean, I've learned a lot from different people over the years, but like if you're a manager and you're managing your team, if you don't know what's happening with them to some extent in their personal life, how they're doing really, you're not managing them well. You're mismanaging them as far as I'm concerned. So taking a personal interest in the people around you, whether in a formal capacity as their manager or just as a friend, as a work colleague, as someone who cares about the well-being of your team. So it was sort of in the beginning just natural because we were like a band of brothers and sisters that were like, you know, would sleep in the office sometime. Like it was crazy. And then we needed to make it more formal. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. You could have a whole podcast about how do you retain or improve or evolve your culture going from that startup phase where you don't need to talk about it. It just is. It's like, if you're like working together, it's like you go for, everybody, let's go for beer, you know, to then it's a team of 60 people who don't quite know each other. And they're in three, four, five locations. And then how do you maintain? So origin of the culture is just the energy around myself and some of the people that were there at the very outset, how we've made it, I guess, more institutional (laughs) while not making it too institutional in the other offices has been a lot of work around leadership training. So that our leaders have to be great. You know, I've become a lot more 
not intentionally. And I still have literally every week, probably three or four coffees with different people in my team. Just like yeah. not saying my formal catch up that eight people report directly to me, but then I'm talking about like, you know, you're just, you know, people who don't report to me, maybe an artist, maybe a modeler, maybe a project manager, maybe someone I'm like, Hey, let's have a zoom coffee. Or when I used to travel before COVID, <laughs> it would be, I would come there and have meeting, 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 just, how you going? What's up? You know, they still, now I still am, even though I do that, it's not the same as it was in year one and two when we're still great friends with those people that some of them are still here. Others don't work at Binyan anymore. We're still friends. So point being that it's their manager who has to be that guy or girl for them. They have to be that person that they feel a sense of affinity, care, respect. And you've got a problem, you can come, I can put my hand around your shoulder. I can help you with this. You know, I, I'll support you. That's one of the things we've done, basically making sure each of the leaders know how to be the leader for their people. They're not just there to do a job. They're not a line manager. I hate that term. You know, some sort of cog in the wheel. No, you're their mentor. Like discipline also means disciple. You know, you're there to discipline them in a certain sense, to tell them what yeah. to do. But they also, a disciple means someone you, you nurture them. There's a certain nurturing component that's very important to me in how we run this place. Yeah, and then there's certain attitudes. Like, what does it mean to care about the client? One of our values is, the client is important, so help them succeed. Also, you're supposed to help them succeed. If what they want will help them fail, don't let that happen. Have yeah. a relationship with the client so you can go, hey, man, I know you said you want this, but it's going to look rubbish. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Let me do it differently because it'll look, be better. So I, I care about the client. I'm not doing this because I'm too uppity, but I'm also not necessarily always doing what the client says because my job is to help them be successful. So we have six of these different things. Of six values, and I could talk for an hour each one, but they're just very, very quickly, just so that this is something I guess we put in place. It's like a formal thing. So it's the client's important to help them succeed. Be a mensch, play for the team, which is all that kind of interpersonal, being a decent person and just being nice. The other one is be limitless. So like extend your limitations and your boundaries. Drive for something just to develop yourself. Lead the conversation. It's a little bit of like Obama, be the change you want to see in the world. You've got a great idea. Okay, don't complain about it. Propose how you want to solve it. That's the Binyan way. Complainers, there's plenty of complainers. We can all complain. And there's one more. So inspire and be inspired. That's very important. So that energy of inspiration, literally going, I saw a movie on the weekend. You should watch it. Or it could be, look at the work I'm doing. I'm so inspired by like everybody's job is to inspire each other. The company's in the great and, and glorious inspiration channel. We're not the source of it. We all make it. And that kind of collective inspiration piece is important. Anyway. Absolutely fascinating. Now, if we can move on to this idea of having a global presence, tell me at the outset, you know, what sparked the idea or the, the need to go overseas if you're, you know, so busy here? And That's a good question. Look, a few reasons. There's a few reasons why we wanted to go global, some proactive and some risk minimization as well. So firstly, I would say, the number one reason, awesome projects. Like it's just be so exciting to work with like the best architects, the best projects, the best architecture. They probably will sound a bit self-promoting, but whatever. I felt the product that we make, like the, the work that we do, imagine how like, okay, you can do apartments in Sydney and in Melbourne and in Brisbane. And some of them are really great. But like, imagine you take that and you apply that to architectural icons around the world. How awesome would that be? So that was one of the things like just, a certain, I guess, entrepreneurial, what do you call it? Fire up my bum. 
Yeah. I'm just yeah. like, let's, let's see if we can do this. Secondly, talent. Like it's always an extremely challenging thing to find and train and retain great artists and other modelers and animators and producers, everybody like that. So both to find great talent and our business is about a sense of purpose and like the Blues Brothers, we're in a mission from God. You know, like yeah. I, I don't literally <laughs> talk that way, but a sense of conquest, like we're creating something great here. Is it fun every single day of the week? No, of course, no, nothing is, nothing is. But if there's a greater purpose, like there's, there's, you're striving to create something that's going to be the kind of company people tell stories about and you feel super proud to be a part of, it needs to keep evolving and conquering. And I don't know, that was just yeah. a part of the thing for me. And I know that drives a lot of the key people that in the business early on. And that helped us, always has helped us to attract the best talent. Of course, you can hire people just by throwing money at them. And at certain stages, you do, but it's not like what we find ourselves these days. It's a lot more people come for the right reasons and it's great. Talent, awesome projects, attracting the best people, giving a sense of progression and a opportunity for progression and growth within our business to our team. So when we open our New York office, we send our like 2IC creative director from Sydney and our studio manager from New York. We ship them, pack them and ship them to and one of our top modelers in Sydney as well. The three of them, we said, guys, can you start up this New York situation for us? What a great opportunity for them. They've all just blossomed incredibly. Like the amount of personal growth and career growth they've all had is just next level. I'm very, very proud of that. And this, I can tell you, I have countless stories like that. That's one of the things I get the most gratification from because it's not the easiest business to be in. It's not the easiest work. It's fiddly. We're not a technology company that makes one thing. Everything is bespoke. Everything's handcrafted. Every client has to be educated about how the process works and understood. It's not the most smooth work. A lot of it is dedication and you need to have the passion to see that it's leading to something. And I think that kind of continuity and aspiration and kind of vision helped the global aspect really helped a lot. So yeah, I don't want people to feel as a glass ceiling or any ceiling. So it's a combination of all those things. Plus opportunistically, I knew for our first international office was New York. I knew there's a gap in the market that we could fill. And we did. It was incredible. Since then, some other people have also come in, which you know always happens. But we're pretty much one of the key market leaders there now, which is pretty trippy from a company from Sydney and Melbourne. So that's kind of some of, and then the same story goes for London. London, it was a slightly different story. London, it was always one of these things like, man, this is going to be the most competitive place to go. Cause I would say the highest concentration of top archivist companies historically have been in London. I'd say there's just as many in Australia these days. And it was like, let's challenge ourselves against the very best. I'm always up for a challenge, you know, very never, good. never say never. Oh, and I forgot risk minimization. Of course, we're in the property yeah. market. So COVID, great example. We've been able to, now, of course, we took a hit, but we've been able to recover relatively quickly because of that. Because, you know, at first, America went off the cliff, but then now it's really come back very, very strong. And even though Australia and Europe are a bit wobbly, we're able to basically kind of like draw upon so many other sources of new work that it makes the business very strong. So tracking back to the idea of you'd mentioned, you don't like thinking of your employees having a, a glass ceiling, but, and I'm also wondering where do you see your, like the business heading? Obviously you've sort of expanded out of Sydney and Melbourne, you've gone overseas. 
but where do you see it sort of going or do you see it getting to a point where it's enough or do you just want to just keep going? We're not necessarily aggressively growing in terms of headcount right now. If anything, you know, through COVID, we've kind of become a little bit smaller. I think at our peak, we're about 100 plus people. Now we're about 85. So, you know, some of that is just like organic. Other bits is more strategic kind of restructuring a couple of things. So we're not in a massive growth phase now. We, I like the size of businesses at. We can do both, you know, beautiful handcrafted projects that are, you know, very specific and we can do complex things that kind of, you know, no one else can do. So our goal is to, going back to that earlier question, really, it's to keep diversifying the kind of content we create across the various pillars of stills, animation, immersive digital experience, VR, that growing that aspect of the business that now represents probably, you know, stills are probably 60% and then animation 30 and then the other bits are like 10. We want to grow those other areas to some extent. That again, creates opportunities for people in our business because some artists, they'll work in stills for five, 10 years and then they want to do something different. They want to evolve. So the more diverse we are as a business, the more those opportunities are there for them. So that's where our growth I see coming. Now, that includes being more and more global because we want to be in the conversation for the best project anywhere in the world. Like whenever someone is doing, I don't know, iconic resort in some island that is, you know, only hear about in the movies, when they go, okay, who should we get to do the renders? We always want to be in that conversation. So that's still, the globalism (laughs) is still there. It's not about opening offices necessarily everywhere. We may strategically say it really do need that to be on the ground could be West Coast US, could be another location in Europe, could be Asia, could be Middle East. I mean, who knows? It's working in all those places. Some places to be able to work, you need to be on the ground. We're not growing for growth's sake. I like the size that we got to. A lot of hard work to get to this point. So I'm happy refining what we have while growing. And and just in terms of the business plan, obviously, you know, that kind of more mind, you know, intelligence work, creativity work, you can get compensated better for that than just doing your renders, which there's always going to be someone in maybe a a low cost country or some guy in his underwear at home that can do it for half the price and 80% is good. You know, you don't want to fight against that. That's not our game. The companies we look at as a model for where we want to go in some ways, like companies outside of Arquivis, like The Mill, you know, those type of amazing production houses. Now we live in the world of architecture and real estate. That's our home base. But if that could extend to the related things, yeah, that that would be awesome as well. So we're looking at like, what will this business be in five, 10 years? That's the conversations we're having. And it's not because like, oh, what we're doing is not working. It's it's working really well. (laughs) It's Mm, more to do with like, we don't want to get stale ever. We want to make sure we're ahead of our own, you know, progression. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the second part of the episode. I don't know about you, but I got a lot out of this part, particularly around Andre's approach to the development of business culture. Please join me again for the third and final part of my conversation with Andre Dolnikov. See you soon.